Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. I am Julia Ekpo. I am the elementary pastor here at Antioch. I'm married to Lloyd. I'm mother to Esther, Micah, and then two elementary kids, Rosie and Pippin. We have two dogs and 10 COVID-purchased chickens in our backyard. It grew. It was five. It's now 10. Uh, and we live over here in Wedgwood, so our neighbors are super thrilled about them. I'm going to tell you what. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, Jamie called me up and asked me to preach this summer. We started working through the calendar and the dates of when would be a good fit. And when we narrowed it down to today, he started chuckling a little bit and some anxiety went straight into my heart as he said, oh, by the way, it's Mark 14, the longest chapter in the book of Mark. So you're going to have lots of material to get through. Uh, and he's not wrong, guys. We have 72 verses to get through today. Um, so welcome to the longest and most depressing chapter in the book of Mark. Um, last week, uh, Jim Reynolds described the final week of Jesus's life as the temple war. And so if the last week of his life was the temple war, then the last 48 hours could be described as the abandonment of Jesus. Um, so, you know, I need to talk to God before I talk to people. I do a lot better when I do it that way. So let's pray and then we can jump in. All right, Father God, we thank you so much that even in the midst of abandonment and war and struggle and strife, we get to come to you and we get to see how Jesus responded to that, Lord. And we get to see how you respond back to him. So Father, today I pray that our ears are open and our hearts are open for all of the things that you want us to know about you and to learn about you through the um, gospel of Mark. We thank you, Lord, that you show up. And we thank you, Lord, that you're here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's summarize these 72 uh, verses real quick because we are not reading all of them. In this chapter, we're going to see the plot to kill Jesus. We're going to see it start to unfold. He'll be anointed, share the Last Supper with his disciples, spend a night of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we end on the major upper of Peter denying him three times. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Okay, so Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest and kill Jesus. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Okay, so the Passover is a time of great patriotism for the Israelites. Kind of like today, 4th of July for us. Happy 4th of July, by the way. But it was also a time of great expectation for the Messiah. The, the streets would have been filled with storytellers telling the story of the Exodus. The synagogue teachers would have been speaking about this portion of their history for the last month. The tombs would have been whitewashed freshly so people wouldn't accidentally get too close and become unclean by touching them. And also, um, there would have been 256,000 lambs killed this week for Passover. It's estimated that it's one lamb for at least 10 people in each home. So we're talking two and a half million people pilgrimaged and packed into Jerusalem. Because if you lived close by, you were actually required to spend the Passover in Jerusalem. 
This means that out of that two and a half million people, a lot of them would have come from Galilee, okay? This is where Jesus performed 37 miracles. So a lot of these people would have seen or experienced a miracle either firsthand or even secondhand through someone they knew. Maybe they were present at the Sermon on the Mount and got to hear him speak, but they for sure would have heard rumors about him. They would have known who he was, okay? He was a growing thing, so much so that Susan Ryan in Mark 11, when she was speaking on Mark 11, told us that people had flooded the area to welcome him, shouting Hosanna when he made his way into Bethany, um, into the area for the past over itself, right? So here we are. He's come in. People have shouted, praised his name. Hosanna, you're here. He's come to the temple. He's preached. He drove out the money changers, flipped over tables, cleansed the temple, and now the high priests are angry. They're so angry that during the Passover, when all of this preparation for purification is going on, they're plotting murder. They are plotting the demise of Jesus because of what he did in the temple and because their position in Rome and their authority over the Jews were now in question. They said, not during the feast or the people may riot. These guys are letting self-preservation lead them to the point of committing cold-blooded murder of someone who at the very least has been deemed a great prophet. And it's all because they're afraid of the people rebelling against them. These priests, these anointed leaders of God's people are so angry for being called out and checked. And instead of feeling conviction for what they're doing, they're turning their back on God. Instead of taking their own words and teachings to heart, instead of taking their own traditions of purifying themselves and readying themselves for Passover, they're putting and putting their focus on God, which is what they're telling everyone else to do. What have they done? They've completely turned their back on God. They've turned off their thoughts from Him, their ears to Him, and they've hardened their hearts against God. Now, God has gone through this type of abandonment before, right? He did in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose their own way instead of living in personal intimacy with God in the Garden. They did it again, I mean, in the book of Exodus, when the people, Moses went up the mountain to get the word of God. But God, you know, he was gone for too long. So the people rebel, they make a golden idol, and they start worshiping it instead of God, who had just led them out of slavery. And then again, when the Jews tell God, you're not enough for us, we need a king. Sorry, God, you're great. Thanks for all the stuff in the wilderness and providing for us and you know, all of that great stuff, but you're not enough. We need a man to follow. But you know, how does God respond to this type of abandonment? He sent the most precious part of himself to be in the presence of those very people that had turned against him. His response was to seek those people out by putting flesh on what he was already doing in spirit. He sent Jesus to heal, to provide through miracles, to defeat death, to teach them. And then later we see that he teaches them by obeying his own will to the point of going to the cross for all of these people. He turned to them just like he turns to us today. So these leaders are hard-hearted, they're against God, and they literally can't see God in the flesh before them. The temple was really at war, like Jim said. The leaders were on the side of world culture, 
and Jesus was on the side of God culture. The leaders are representing power and ego, position and pride, fleshly desires, and what suited their own personal agenda. But God in Jesus is showing us humility by riding a donkey into town, by upholding the law and sending out the money changers so that God's temple would be pure again, and by honoring God's will all the way to the cross for us and for them. All right, so move along. Verses 3 through 11, it tells that while he was in Bethany, Jesus was at the home of Simon the leper. Now, this could have said Simon the ex-leper because leprosy made you unclean. It was a painful, highly contagious disease. And if you had leprosy, you couldn't be in your home. You couldn't be in town. People couldn't come near you. So if Jesus and his disciples are there, we can infer that he has been healed and probably by Jesus. So all of the disciples are reclining at the table of Simon the ex-leper, and in walks this woman. She has an alabaster vial of spikenard, which was a very expensive type of perfume. She breaks the jar and she pours it on Jesus' head. And some of the disciples, Mark's pretty discreet. He doesn't call people out. He doesn't tell us who. But some of the disciples start speaking against her, complaining and harshly rebuking her, saying, she is wasting this really expensive gift. Shouldn't she sell it and give the money to the poor? Okay, now here, John is not nearly as discreet. John straight up calls out Judas as the main instigator in this rude behavior. Okay, in fact, John reveals a lot about what's going on. He calls Judas a thief, and he calls out the fact that he'd been embezzling from the pocketbook of Jesus. Okay, he also tells us how quickly, uh, how, how bad Judas is off here, because he tells us in John 12, 5, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In this moment, Judas had seen the jar, realized what it was made out of, smelled what its contents was, and quickly did the math to figure out its value. And this is not something to be impressed about. Yeah, he's a great mathematician. He didn't care about the poor. He was wanting to skim off the top of it, to steal from the poor, to steal from Jesus, and to steal from someone else's generosity and judging them. However, Jesus is always the gentleman, isn't he? No, he stops there grumbling, and he defends the woman. It says in Mark uh, 14, 6 through 9, Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time. But you will not always have me. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly, I tell you that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, her story will be told as well in memory of her. So right there, he's not telling them to not take care of the poor, right? He's referencing Deuteronomy 15. Basically, you're always going to have the opportunity for generous living, and you should keep doing that. But right now, she has the opportunity for personal intimacy with me. And that also has to happen, right? In other words, keep doing what's right. Keep living generously. But keep me precious in your heart, honoring me with all you have personally and intimately and not just with lip service. Stop judging someone else's generosity. That's not what is supposed to be happening right here. Because God always wants us to take the opportunity for personal intimacy with him. 
All right, so Judas, one of Jesus' appointed 12, right? He's pretty angry about this. Not only was he publicly rebuked in front of the other 11, but he lost the opportunity to skim off the top of a year's wages had this perfume been sold. But also, Jesus told them that the story of a lowly woman, one of the lowest people in society, was going to be told alongside his own story throughout the rest of the world. And I'll wager that this anger in Judas was actually a growing agitation, right? You don't go from walking for three years with Jesus and, and seeing everything that he saw and hearing everything that he did to getting so angry in one night that you run to the chief, of pre, uh, the chief priest's house and strike up a deal with them to hand Jesus over for money. Think about this. We all, they all knew that the priests were looking for Jesus to arrest and kill him. And this one night, he didn't get just angry enough to go. No, 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 no. This was premeditated. It was just the last straw. But that anger and abandonment in Judas's heart had, was already happening. All right, so here we are. Uh, we're in verses 12 through 31. And we need to move forward a little bit. Uh, we've come to the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb on this day, which is also Jesus's final meal, also known as the Last Supper. And usually the Passover shared with your family, okay? But here we see Jesus celebrating it with his disciples, all of his disciples. Every last one of them is invited to this because his church community, even though they were fairly uh, off base kind of often and missed the point completely like they had just the other night at Simon's house, they were more powerful to him than his family of origin. And this is not to disparage our families of origin. This is to show you how close he had become to these guys during this time. They were now his family. They were his brothers. They had done life together. They had healed together. They had defeated death. Jesus had defeated de death with them in his presence. Okay. So can you imagine you're Jesus. This is your final meal and you know it. You know that the man sitting beside you at the table has betrayed you. He's made a deal for your death. Everyone sitting at the table with you is going to abandon you in your darkest hour. And yet every single one of them were invited to dine and recline at the table with Jesus. Because you guys, Jesus still draws us close even when we totally blow it. He still, he doesn't shun us. He doesn't abandon them. He didn't turn away from them. He invited them to him, to be with him, to eat with him. So we're going to read verses 17 through 21. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one said, surely you don't mean me. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Can you imagine how chaotic this moment is? You're supposed to be sharing the sacred Passover meal. And honestly, for the past few days, everything has been like a grace chaos sandwich with Jesus, Okay. He comes in to the triumphal entry, and it's grace. He overturns the tables in the temple, and that's pretty chaotic. The sweet woman comes in and anoints his head, and that's grace. And Jesus knows the secret chaos going on in Judas's heart as he goes to betray him. The Lord's Supper, grace. And now this, 
Jesus announcing his betrayal and his death, chaos. I mean, wouldn't it have been better for Jesus to just have not chosen Judas or to have dumped him before this happened? But why, why, why would Jesus choose Judas, even though he knew? Because what God is showing us here is that all real love has to have vulnerability. Jesus drew Judas close to him during the supper, knowing that evil had entered his heart and that his betrayal was imminent. We betray and we abandon Jesus, and he still chooses us. Okay, N.T. Wright says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator anymore, but until you're actually part of the drama that has him as the central character. Guys, he still draws us close. He still loves us and our vulnerability, and he is still our faithful God to the very end. So these are Jesus' closest and most intimate friends. They've seen it all. They know he's being hunted by the Sanhedrin, and now this bomb has been dropped. And can you imagine? The anxiety in the room was palpable. It had to have been. Everyone is fearful and suspicious of themselves and each other. I mean, his disciples are a complete disaster in the moment. Every one of them declaring their unending love for God, swearing that they will never leave him. Surely he's wrong in this one moment, right? He's wrong this one time. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be us. But even as the hammer's fallen, Jesus continues the meal with them. He makes the whole thing harder and also weirder by telling them, oh, by the way, none of you are going to stay with me through all of this. And please eat my body and drink my blood, right? Kind of weird. Um, Jesus knows that this hour is quickly coming at the hand of one of his own appointed leaders to be carried out by God's appointed leaders. And what does he do? He eats a meal with his friends. He sings a hymn to God. And then he takes these messy disciples away for a night of sanctuary. And they head to the Mount of Olives even as Judas has fled to the chief priests so they can prepare for the arrest and trial of Jesus. Jesus worships in the midst of anxiety and chaos and broken relationships. He turns his focus back to God instead of what's happening here. In verses 27 through 31, Jesus tells his disciples, you will all fall away for it is written, the shepherd, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter declares that even if everyone else falls away, he won't. Jesus assures him, I tell you the truth today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. In verses 32 through 41, Jesus and the disciples arrive in Gethsemane, and this is a night full of struggle. The Bible says that he is deeply distressed and troubled. Distressed is from the Greek root, root word, And in this context, it means thrown into terror. And troubled is from the Greek root word adamonio, and this means anguished. And he takes Peter, James, and John further along with him while the others are instructed to sit here, keep watch while I go pray. And Jesus has brought these three with him to witness his anguish. It's not just because their presence would have brought him some comfort, but it's also because he wants them to gird themselves up in prayer because he knows what temptations they're about to face themselves. 
He wanted them to pray for themselves so they could have victory in their temptations in the heat of this spiritual battle. The example Jesus sets for spiritual warfare is right here. He watches how God moves, and then he prays for his part in it. He teaches us in this moment that it's okay to be anguished when we're faced with horrible things, because guys, we are faced with horrible things. It's even okay to ask God to let you avoid tragedy. In 1436, he says, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. No one is recorded in scripture to have struggled in this manner before. Nothing compares in the Bible to Jesus's anguish and agony in this moment. And if we learn nothing else from this passage, it is that we must pray through our struggles. We have to pray in our pain and our doubts and our anxiety and our sickness and our broken relationships. Every struggle, we must praise the Lord and we must pray to him through it. If we wait to pray until we're struggle-free, we've blown it. We've missed it. Because God guarantees that we're going to have struggles in this life. The other thing that Jesus teaches us here is that no matter how horrible a situation may be, we must always end in submission to God. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's struggling with more than just the cross on this, right? This is more than physical death. All right, he's sensing his own alienation from God that comes with taking on the sin of the world while on the cross. This is a pregnant moment here where he's trying to figure out what God is doing. Guys, Jesus is saying, I, I did okay with the temptation in the desert. God, I'm not okay right now. Why are you abandoning me? Why are you abandoning yourself? I'm you, I'm your son. We always turn to each other, Father. In this moment, Jesus is praying like Jeremiah. He's not praying like the popular Greek philosophers of the day, right? In this description, Jesus here, he's, this is desperation, almost paralyzed by pain and anxiety, crying out, sick, sweating, hurt stomach, struggling prayer. This is prayer. This type of desperation before the Lord is prayer. And his disciples fail catastrophically right here in this moment. They do not follow Jesus's admonition in verses 32 through 37 to keep watch and pray. I mean, they're asleep, physically and spiritually asleep, unconscious. Jesus finds them that way three times. He was abandoned in the middle of his darkest hour by those men that he told to keep watch that he brought with him. You know, the ones that like just an hour or two ago had pledged they'd never leave him sleeping on the job. They don't take the time as Jesus does to prepare for the hardship that's in front of them because they still don't get it. They're still expecting a physical victory over Rome through Jesus, and they're not preparing for the spiritual battle that's happening right there in front of them. He even tells them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. If your best friend was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, would you go fall asleep on the couch? No, we don't do that. What about when your spouse or your children are overwhelmed or struggling? Do you stay up and pray with them or pray over them? What about when God wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're anxious and you don't know why? Are you keeping watch for that anxiety? Are you struggling in prayer during these hardest moments of your life? 
We can't be like Scarlett O'Hara and think about it tomorrow at Tara. No, no. The time is now. The hour is now. Sin and temptation are not going to wait until you're ready for it tomorrow. Satan wants you now. He wanted you yesterday. And if you're not ready, if you're not girded up in prayer and worship, then you're not going to be ready for now. You're not going to be ready for tomorrow. Victory will not be yours if you are not giving it to the Lord. So here we have Jesus and his moment of victories come. He says, here comes my betrayer. And Judas has the nerve to walk up to Jesus and kiss him on the cheek as his sign of betrayal. And Jesus says, okay, here I am. I'm not running. He gets handcuffed or tied up or chained up, whatever they did when they arrested people back then. And again, chaos ensues. Okay, Peter decides to abandon every message of love that God has ever taught. You know, turning the other cheek, forgiving people, peace. Nope, he comes out of the gate swinging. Literally swinging a sword and chops someone's ear off. And what does Jesus do? His character doesn't change one bit calms down Peter, he heals the ear, and he reminds them that he's not here to lead a rebellion. He has, he has no weapons, and he was just teaching in the temples with them every day. Oswald Chambers says, when God gets us alone through suffering, heartbreak, temptation, disappointment, sickness, or thwarted by friendship, basically everything Jesus just went through, when he gets us absolutely alone, and we are totally speechless, unable to ask even one question, he begins to teach us. God's gone through all of that. Jesus has gone through all of that. And now he's face to face with the will of God in the flesh and he submits to it. He says, I'm not running. Come and get me. I'm submitting right now. And this is his victory. Jim Reynolds said just the other day that the pathos of God is that he experiences emotions, but his character doesn't change. Jesus is the definitive self-revelation of God, even in this description of emotional turmoil and passion. Everyone else, what do they do? They scatter. Verses 51 and 52 says that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized Jesus, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Guys, he was so scared he fled naked. I, I have never been in a situation so severe that I dropped my clothes and ran for self-preservation. This is the most humiliating form of abandonment I could think of ever committing. And some scholars actually think that this was Mark because he was the youngest, most immature. You know, the, the linen garment would have been a sleeping garment. So this is a pretty dramatic picture of the type of terror that Jesus, uh, that the disciples would have felt during uh, when Jesus was taken into custody. And just imagine how terrifying this is. Soldiers are coming. The priests are coming. Jesus is arrested. And, um, and then Peter puts everyone's lives in jeopardy by cutting off a soldier's ear. Now they're all in jeopardy of being arrested and taken in with Jesus. So here we are. Jesus has now been taken before the Sanhedrin. And after many people brought false witnesses against him, lying about him, none of their stories adding up. So the priests can't move forward with the trial. They finally have enough of it and look at Jesus and say, are you the Christ, son of the blessed one? And Jesus answers, yes, I am. And the priests have finally got a case to put him on trial. Jesus has worshiped and prayed all night long and submitted to God. His character hasn't changed. His story hasn't changed. And his witness has remained faithful. 
When our circumstances are less than favorable or flat out hard, does our witness change? Peter's did. He didn't pray. He didn't take it seriously enough. And he denied Jesus three times that very night while he was on trial in his greatest hour of need for fear of death. But we see Jesus face to face with death and he doesn't deny God or himself once. We must follow the example of Jesus and heed his warning to keep watch, pray, worship, and not allow our witness to be dictated by our circumstances. After all of that uh, struggle, next week we're going to hear from Jason Cox, who's sitting over there, and we're going to see Jesus say, okay, and he's going to go to the cross and die for every single one of the people that abandoned him before, everyone that he invited to the table that abandoned him in the garden, for everyone that's abandoned him in heart, and for each one of us as well. Because that's who he is. He invites us to the table. He shows us how to press in. He doesn't guarantee us struggle-free life, but he shows us how to respond to struggles in life, how to still have joy, how to still press into those hard, messy relationships, how to not let being offended drive a wedge between him and the people that are closest to him and his community. That's not what he does. All right, guys, so we're going to please stand up. We need some ministry time, I think. We could have Mr. Aaron come back up. We can't wait until life is good again and we are good enough to come before God. He wants to draw us close now. God wants us to turn to him even in the ugliest moments of our lives. If you have some struggles that you need to bring before Jesus, please come up and get some prayer from our ministry team. Maybe you just need to spend some time worshiping again, reminding yourself of God's faithfulness. If you have places in your heart where you've abandoned God or denied his rule and reign in your life, come on up and get prayer. Just get the Lord, the one who never abandons us but draws us close. And if you have any other prayer needs at all, we're here for you. Come on up.